Now, there are many, many, many ways in which politics is in which magic is articulated in politics. So, of British prime ministers, Lloyd George, who was PM from uh, 1916 to 1922, was known in his time as the Welsh Wizard, an epithet that invokes Merlin and other originals often applied to sports stars, so recently it's Gareth Bale, the rugby player, who's the Welsh wizard. I think there's an interesting difference in the connotations he's between those player, two. He's a football player, not a rugby player. I beg your pardon? He's a football player. Oh, he's a football player, I'm so sorry. And he is a wizard. He is Welsh, and he is yeah, a wizard. he's a Real Madrid. He's, he's wizard, okay. So there's an interesting difference. For a sports star, the term is entirely approbatory, I think. Magic in sport, or in music, or in art, is an unalloyed good thing. In a politician, though, it always conveys at least ambivalence and ambiguity and an admixture of disapproval. It's not good for Lloyd George to have been known as a wizard. And why that is points to a deeper set of problems about politics, which I think are illuminated when we think about this relationship between politics and magic. So we've got voodoo economics and spin doctors. Such, such epithets signify disapprobation. It's all superficial. It's smoke and mirrors. Politicians and their advisors are charlatans. And these are dangerous phenomena because people are taken in by them. And that is clearly counter to democratic and republican ideals of citizenship. It's also counter, actually, to the ideals of authoritarian systems. Authoritarian political rule requires obedience, but obedience to the authority as such because of his legitimacy, because of his power of authority, not because of the tricks he plays, or the effects they pull off. The voodoo economists, the political wizards, the spin doctors do harm because they disempower critics and audiences, because they're by definition reckless about their, the effects of their actions, and because they actually reveal a kind of powerlessness in their own subjectivity. The authoritarian dominator, who has recourse to magic, is, is on the road to his own and the polity's ru ruin. So that's one meaning of magic in politics. We also speak frequently in social science of magical thinking, and especially in the context of politics. The invalid attribution of causal power or the invalid expectation that one thing will lead to another. This has a commonplace in social life, uh, thinking that if you pray hard enough your keys will be found or we can have growth as well as social mobility without anybody suffering allows us as human beings to proceed, to go on regardless of the fact that things don't work to the optimum. It, magical thinking operates, arguably, to allay anxiety and uncertainty. Of course, the downside of that functionalist account is that 
magical practices often themselves are used or function to instigate the anxiety and the uncertainty in the first place. And thinking about Lord and Lady Macbeth in Shakespeare's play, they've clearly got a very human backstory. But one account of that backstory is that they were getting on all right. They were okay until the weird sisters disrupt Macbeth's sense of himself and his place and the world and his situation in it. Magical thinking, where we can have economic growth and sustainability. We can have social mobility with nobody ever being worse off in adulthood than they were in childhood. It's a ubiquitous feature of public policy. In almost any polity we can think of, barring some utopias, although some utopias actually do, when you read them critically, seem to consist of a massive triumph of hope or optimism over even possibility. Magical thinking, too, belies credulity on the part of the polity. And politicians are often figured as tricksters who exploit the people and engage in this ledger domain. There's another association between politics and language which lies in the analogy between the two practices' special uses of language. The spells and incantations of the wizard which can be re revealed by rational study to be part of the trick, can be allied to and likened to the politician's oratory. And I think this was part of Lloyd George's, like Lloyd George's reputation. Socrates in Menexenus makes fun of the bewitching effects of diction and rhetoric and takes uh, others to task for the way in which they come under the spell of the orators. Now, this analogy between politics and magic is used by Max Weber. In a sense which is different, but just as ambiguous as this admixture of approbation and disapprobation that I've been speaking of up to now. It's just as ambiguous as the irony in Socrates' dismissal of oratory as spellbinding when we think about his own practices of enmeshing people in webs of logic and, as it were, bringing them to uh, enunciate or espouse positions that they certainly don't believe and had never thought of before. Socrates, on one meaning, if anybody is, is a, a bewitching ensnarer, you know, he's, he's your guy. Weber, though, is concerned to build political realism against the utopians and against the magicians. For him, politics is not magic. It is, in his words, the slow boring of hard boards. It's making social, that's from the profession and vocation of politics. It's making social relationships and connections. It's building coalitions. It's trying to think about if you had a policy such as growth or justice, how can you implement and administer such a policy? But of 
because Weber is also the theorist of the necessary role of charisma in relation to rationality and charisma in particular in politics. The courageous politician who must take a stand, the wise politician who uses his foresight to understand the consequences of different courses of action and sees the game several moves ahead, must also breathe magic. Weber, in many contexts, notably his anthropology, but also aspects of his social theory, was straightforwardly functionalist and materialist about power and magic. He recognised the ways that power and authority are wielded, about the ways that institutions of mystery and awe, like churches and priestly castes, intersect with the material institutions of violence and money. He can look at the way the churches and the magicians have their place in the cities and the castles and the palaces, in the markets and the families and the bureaucracies and the firms. And we can, of course, find purely material, social and rational accounts of charisma in terms of appearance, comportment, emotional intelligence, communicative skill, human empathy. But the idea of magic isn't completely rationalised away in Weber's modern politics. He was concerned about what would take the place of enchantment in a disenchanted world. And he particularly feared that the straight use of disciplines, such as the discipline of the market, or of the police, or of bureaucracy, would be inhuman and oppressive, and would be overwhelmingly bad for individuals because of their, as it were, unadorned exercise of power. So he insisted that rational authority has to be allied with virtuous leadership for which charisma is necessary. So on the one hand, Weber's social theory points us in the 20th century towards the straightforwardly materialist, although complicated, theories of power and institutions in theorists like Michel Foucault. On the other hand, Weber never quite lets go of the idea of the uncanny. We might interpret him as saying that sometimes things are as if magic or enchantment is at work in the world, but equally, there are passages in Weber, his invocation of the diabolical powers of violence with which politicians necessarily have to deal, for instance, that go beyond analogy, even beyond hyperbole, arguably. So in just the same way as all the politics in Macbeth, from the feudal kingship of Duncan to Malcolm's fear, fearful consideration of the impossible demands of the Christian prince, to Macbeth's paranoid, violent tyranny itself, all the politics in that play are touched with the diabolical. 
The play deals also with the politics of speech, not just the magic of rhetoric, although we do have the weird sisters' incantations and spells, but also the ironies of fearful speech, where the lords are aware that there are spies everywhere and in a central scene are speaking to each other in code, as people do in tyrannical societies. And where we have recourse to ambiguity in meaning in order to try to escape censorship, or in this case, the spies. And in Macbeth, we also find political agency, as well as speech, spectacularly envisioned. Macbeth, at the beginning of the play, has had a decisive warrior victory over Macdonald. But his status as hero, as the uh, plot wears on, gives way to his own political need to engender loyalty, to understand other actors' true as well as their apparent motivations, for him to see several steps ahead in the game. That is the difficult stuff. As well as Weber's slow boring of hard boards, successful actors need that level of political uh, wisdom and foresight. But Macbeth gets, quote, stepped in so far that he can't turn back. Malcolm has uh, voices apprehension at the demand that the role of king will make on him. And his judgment of himself as unable and unworthy gives way in the final uh, scene of the play to the enactment of sovereignty. He doesn't think he's capable of being a sovereign, but he can act it out. And we get one of those celebrated Shakespearean endings, which end with, you know, the new king, the new sovereign coming on the scene and promising peace hereafter. My thanes and kingsmen, he, kinsmen, henceforth be earls, he says, dishing out the goods. He promises to punish Macbeth's cruel ministers who have fled. This and what needful else that calls upon us by the grace of God, we will perform in measure, time and place, are the last words of the play. So there's this deep ambiguity in the idea of political action. We do associate it with decisive action that brings finality and settlement. But we also know that politics is always uncertain and always open, never settled. Who in the audience, as they leave the theatre, apart from the satisfaction of having watched a narrative ending, can really believe that everything's going to be marvellous under Malcolm? We aren't expected as citizens and as theatre-going citizens to be as naive as that about kingship and politics. So from a straight political theory point of view, we can read Macbeth, like other Shakespeare dramas, 
as showing us this auto-antonymous meaning of politics. It always means both one thing and its, and its opposite. It means both courage and openness and ruthless cunning and mendacity. It means both uncertainty and openness to a future which we cannot foresee and decisive closure. People don't like it for different reasons. I mean, some don't like one of those and some don't like the other, but between us, everybody kind of has got a beef about politics. But in this play, more than in the other plays, although it's not absent in, uh, from, uh, from many of Shakespeare's dramas, this touch of the diabolical also accentuates this impossibility of politics, its contradictory nature. So I'm going to turn now to the idea of political demonology. And we've, I'm sure there have been lots of, lots of examples. Demonising, as other people have, have observed today, is a always political but very familiar move in social relations and also in explicitly political relations. So from posters like this 1997 Conservative Party demonise of 97 through uncountable cartoon representations, politicians, and especially the ones we don't like in the other party, are accused of malevolence. Now, of course, accusations of malevolence and magical power serve a range of political functions. It can be the stigmatisation of an outgroup. It serves to accentuate the binary structure of them and us. Equally often, in social life in particular, it can be an assertion of power by a relatively powerless agent against a more powerful one. The accusation of witchcraft in many, many contexts can serve in place of any more material weapon in order to try to do damage to someone. Often, such an accusation redounds against the accuser because if you, if you accuse someone of witchcraft, you then have to sort of show evidence of the harm that they've allegedly done you and you're caught in a bind of needing to be harmed, as it were. But equally obviously, the threat of magic serves as a political resource. I mean, a credible threat of magic, a believable threat of magic. The parade of or claim to magic power functions as a political resource in the way that wealth does or social centrality or cultural capital or the retention of patriarchal authority in societies where patriarchal authority gets you, gets you stuff back. So we can, as it were, materially line up magic um, and e even diabolism as a political resource. Where that's the case, we can see how splitting the world into two and the dehumanisation of political foes, the monster-making, serves 
to inflate differences between two groups. So demonology, in the sense articulated by the Conservative Party, or at least by their communications consultants in 1997, goes further and attributes magic power to a centre of evil. You actually identify a key figure, in this case Tony Blair, and the people who were members of what was commonly enough referred to as his cabal. That had become routine, um, even at this point in his career. So I want to pause again and turn back at more, once more to a political reading of Macbeth before coming back to the conundrums that I have set up. Is there any more to the relationship between magic and politics than metaphor, intensification, hyperbole? Obviously, we can make all kinds of material attributions to a figure like Tony Blair. He was self-serving or self-aggrandizing or had his values all the, way, all the wrong way around or led an administration that muddled up messages with substance or his policies and their implementation would lead the country to ruin or at any rate in the wrong direction. And all of that is intensified, of course, by saying that he's taking us to hell in a handcart or that he himself is demonic or devilish or whatever. But does an attribution of demonism or magical power in relation in particular to political actors go closer to the heart of politics than analyses in terms of rational action theory or Weberian materialism? When we think about the way political power tracks and intersects with other forms of power, financial and economic, uh, military, technocratic, the way it tracks and intersects indeed with patriarchal power and with religious power, is there something different and more elusive about political power? When we put magic into an, as an item in a list of possible political resources, and I do think it belongs there. We know of plenty of situations in which the magicians are the, one who, are the ones who rule, but why does it actually stand out from economics and finance? Is it simply assimilable into a list as just another material, social, and symbolic resource? Now, in Macbeth, familiarly, the natural and the supernatural worlds are both, both juxtaposed and they mingle. I want to add in my reading of Macbeth that there's a third world intersecting with these two, which is sometimes overlooked by critics, and that is the political world. It's the world of the competition for the power to govern. By war and by battle, as we have at the beginning, by assassination, by legitimate succession, by popularity with the people. These <coughs> are the mechanisms, the vehicles for the power to govern, to circulate. In politics, as well as competing for the power to govern and asserting a range of grounds to establish the rightness of one's claim, 
to have the power to govern. The grounds of rightness themselves are an intrinsic element of the political process. So in uh, Macbeth, divine sovereignty is challenged by assassination. The directions of king inheritance are undermined and disputed. Patriarchy's claims in many of Shakespeare's other plays are challenged. It's a central, central theme of his plot, as are the claims of religious authorities and of magicians. In Macbeth, the natural and the built environments, the castle with its pleasant seat and its sweet airs, the storms, the woods, the physical injuries of battle, come into relationship with the supernatural, which sows confusion about what's real and what is just appearance. And obviously there are those familiar tro uh, motifs in Macbeth, like is this a dagger I see before me, where as an audience we're not sure what, what the dagger is and different directors can do that differently. Um, is this a dagger I see before me? But equally in Macbeth, the confusion about what's real and what's um, apparent applies to the material world also. It applies to the identity of the weird sisters. Banquo says, what are these? Live you, you should be women, and yet your beards forbid, forbid me to interpret that you are so. And finally, in Macbeth, the woods march to Dunsinane, confounding our settled expectations about the material world. Now, that ambiguity between appearance and reality is nowhere more central than in politics, where being friendly is a good demeanour for treating with your foes, where what we say is tailored to the audience that we're speaking to rather than being guided purely by veracity or logic, where the successful politician has to appear to be sincere and authentic. Being authentic is insufficient for success in politics. One must on pains of not getting elected, appear to be authentic. Now, that's where I think politics in its very self can be, by its critics, identified with corruption, with the decay and the decomposition of the proper life. Because that idea of appearing to be authentic seems in some deep sense to be a corruption of human values. On another tack, the question of whether political power can really be real, whether really people acting in concert can decide what to do, decide how to decide, and having decided, decide how to implement the decisions that we've made, how, in Hannah Arendt's terms, to make a world we can be sceptical, and many critics are sceptical, about the extent to which it is political power that does the work there, rather than the money, or the military might, or the thuggery, or some other 
material resource. Politics itself, if I can make a claim to such a, such a phenomenon, and the claims of politics, especially the world-building claims, is constantly disavowed. Now, politics in the sense of Lady Macbeth's politics, the ruthless Machiavellian schemer who, you know, knows no mercy and will do what she needs to in order to get to power, is not disavowed. That we can assimilate into our world very, very easily. But the constructive nature of politics or political power is often disavowed and it's often asserted to be really economics or nothing more than the power of violence disguised or that the pretensions of politics are as dust compared to the power of religious salvation or indeed of magic. Now of course setting those up as juxtapositions the pretensions of politics versus the reality of economic flows is a feature of numerous discourses. But I don't think it can do justice to the phenomenology of flows, whether the flows of money or of ministerial office or authority or domination. But there is something intangible and opaque and mysterious about political power itself. Of course we understand that the power to govern can be overwhelmingly determined by who's got economic clout or social prestige. Getting and wielding political power can be done politically by the political resources of interpersonal skills, party organisation, organisational capability, allegiance, action in concert. But equally, we do believe that they are done by, as it were, non-political means. In the end, in Macbeth, the sufferings of the people under tyranny and the organisation of the elites and the uses of strategic action, the woods coming to Dunsinane, confounding the tyrant, bring about a transfer of sovereignty. It is a use of, as well as military, uh, means, also explicitly political means to bring about the downfall of Macbeth. All the others, financial power, religious power, crime, cultural dominance, all leave a remainder, the some elusive thing else that we find very difficult to pin on politics. Now, one account of what that something else is, is identified clearly by Machiavelli, and it pervades Macbeth. Macbeth struggles with his own sense of his fate, his scepticism about it, and with his wife's, Lady Macbeth's, insistence that they must take the chance, must be agents of their own fate when luck delivers an opportunity. If chance will have me king, he says, well, chance may crown me without my stir. He resists her call to action. But Machiavelli is very, and that's, a, that's a, a part of the plot between the two of them. Machiavelli is very clear 
about that aporia, this uncertainty between chance, fate, material implication and action and also about the way in which that uncertainty is absolutely central to political process and to political action. So I've here put forward three alternative analyses of how power and magic hang together. First of all, we can treat allusions to magic as a metaphorical intensifier. So, so to call a politician a wizard is to pass ambiguous judgment on his skill. To demonise a political enemy is to attribute negative qualities to them. Secondly, we can treat magical power, or at least a reputation for magic power, as just another resource in the political competition. As a political theorist, I have to say that I certainly accept the first, and I favour the second account of politics and magic. And yet, there is also something uncanny in politics. We associate political skill with canniness, with shrewdness, good judgment. But there is also that remainder, the uncanny. Because politics is a realm of contradiction, which is both open and closed. We seek both openness and closure. It's unpredictable. Who will take a chance <coughs> and change everything? Who will be swept along by the power of processes and forces? It's never-ending and inexplicable. Decisions are made, but they're not implemented. Or decisions are made and implemented, and as soon as the implementation process is underway, another group of people are arguing the toss about the decision and getting it back onto the political agenda again. That, so the questions are closed only to be immediately reopened. Now, in many ways, I think that account of the elusiveness and uncanniness and sort of contradictoriness of the idea of political power makes, poli makes politics the opposite of magic. If we think of magic as intentional effects, that you've got an agent who has these capacities and can bring about in the world events and effects that they intend to do so. But of course, in magic, as well as in politics, we always have a sceptical question about the relationship between the intention and the effects. First of all, we tend to be sceptical about the claims of magic in the way that we are sceptical about the claims of politicians. And secondly, we worry both about magic and about politics, because both of them seem to have a capacity to escape human agency, to run out of control, to generate unintended consequences. And the, that aspect of them, and certainly that aspect of politics, is part of its very inception. 
that we don't know with any kind of certainty what's going to happen next. Whereas in economics, we spin myths and stories about cause and effect and our capacity to predict and so on. We don't make that kind of prediction uh, when we're talking about political, political things. And it's that threat of uncontrollability, of things running amok and getting out of hand, which makes Macbeth, I think, a very a brilliant play about imagination and belief and human action and interaction and the way in which something magical can derail a perfectly sane society, a perfectly sane um, family, but is also tells us something very interesting about our thinking about politics and it makes of Macbeth an eminently political play because it's between the interaction of political processes of the transfer of sovereignty in the normal constitutional sense and the disruption of this psychological, intangible, magical power, the way in which uh, Macbeth becomes the victim of a fate that he cannot understand, that we learn something about the limitations of constitutional politics. So in my view, the incidence of magic themes and motifs and metaphors in political discourse and practice does tell us something about the uncanny nature of politics itself. Thank you.